If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, whether you're carrying that paper or electronic or however you uh, uh, move with that today, I want to encourage you to find the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians, we're going to be diving in there together. And as you're finding that, let me just uh, jump right in. You know, in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, there were several hundred studies uh, about happiness. About a few hundred a year were, were published. Well, by 2014, there were being published about 10,000 studies per year on the subject of happiness. It was kind of marked a, a shift in, in the field of, of psychology as uh, kind of moving more from studying what was wrong to trying to figure out, well, what, what might be right and celebrating uh, those things. Uh, the, the public really picked up on this. Major media outlets clamored to cover the new research. Soon entrepreneurs and uh, others began monetizing it, founding startups and programming apps to help ordinary people implement the the findings of the gospel of happiness. Celebrities and others uh, picked up on it, personal coaches, motivational speakers, and the movement just kind of continued to swell. According to Psychology Today, in the year 2000, the number of books published about happiness was a modest 50. Just eight years later, in 2008, the number had skyrocketed to 4,000, from 50 to 4,000 books published a year just on the subject of happiness. Of course, you can measure that another way. Google tells us that since the mid-2000s, the interest in happiness as measured by Google searches has tripled, that there have been triple the number of searches for the subject of happiness now as opposed to just a decade ago. And yet with all of that, you would think we no doubt are much, much happier as a people, right? Because of all the studies and all the books and all the seminars and all the apps and all the Google searches. And yet what has puzzled social scientists is with all of that focus on happiness, across the board, there's no indication that happiness is on the rise. In fact, is what social scientists have concluded is the sad irony that chasing happiness actually seems to make people unhappy. You know, when the Bible doesn't talk a lot about happiness, the Bible focuses on something deeper than happiness, and that is joy. Joy that is greater than challenges, greater than circumstances, greater than problems. Joy that that permeates our lives and those who are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is kind of the the theme thought for this entire series uh, is simply this, that, that God has designed you and I not just to endure life, but to enjoy it. Not just to endure life, but to enjoy it. In fact, this is one famous confession of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith says the chief purpose or the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That there is joy that is uh, supposed to be a part of our being all of the time. doesn't mean we like everything that happens or enjoy every moment, but it means that we experience joy in the midst of our life. And maybe you're sitting here today and you say, well, I, I hear you, I hear you. But man, there's just stuff that happens in life. And it just, quite honestly, it just kicks the joy right out of you, right? 
I mean, it just feels like a, a kick in the gut sometimes. It feels like you just get blown away and whatever shred of joy was there is, is long gone. And yet even in the midst of the ups and downs of life, the teaching of God's Word is that we can walk with, we can live with a, a joy. And so what I want to do this fall is just invite you to take a journey with me. And we're going to journey through the book of Philippians, this New Testament letter that Paul wrote, interestingly enough, from a prison cell, from a prison cell. And it is permeated with joy. It, it is permeated with, with, with this, this, this overarching joy that is greater than anything in our life. And as we go through this journey, I hope that you and I will learn a little bit more about how to do what exactly Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But, but maybe to get there, we ought to have a few clarifications on the front end. So as we kind of think about taking this journey, let me make sure that we're kind of speaking the same language as, as much as possible. See, joy is not about our circumstances. Joy is not about our circumstances. Our happiness is vitally connected to our circumstances, but joy supersedes. Joy is greater than our circumstances, and our circumstances go up and down. There are high days and low days. There are high moments and low moments, even in the course of a day. But joy is something that is greater than and separate from our circumstances. Joy is also not about a personality. Sometimes when we think about joy, we think about, well, that person is a, is a joyous person because they're loud, they're exuberant, they joke a lot, or uh, they, they seem to be happy, or they're outgoing, whatever it may be. But what we understand is that joy Joy is not just a single personality. Regardless of the personality type that God wired you with, you can experience joy. In fact is, if you think about our culture, think about comedians, right? And what we know as a society is that some comedians, some well-known, high-profile comedians are the most seemingly the most happiest, the, the loosest, the funnest, the most enjoyable people on the outside and when they're on stage, right? But then we've read the stories of how they are behind the scenes. We've read the headlines of those who have taken their life because beneath the, the outward show of personality, there was an absence of joy. There was misery. Joy is not about a personality type. Joy is a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice that we can make. We have the capacity to make in Jesus Christ. And that leads to the, this last observation. Joy flows. Joy flows from our relationship with Christ. It, it flows out of who we are and who we are connected to. And Jesus was preparing his followers uh, for what was about to come, his arrest, his crucifixion, and seemingly the the end of all of their hopes and dreams and beliefs. He, he reminded them of what he had been pouring into their life. These things, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be 
full, that, that he desires for us to experience the joy that comes from and flows from him. In the Old Testament, Nehemiah was rallying the people, and as they were coming kind of face to face with the reality of their sin, there was heartbreak and there was grief over that, appropriately so. But he reminded them that, that, that even in the midst of that, it was not a time for them to grieve and mourn. It was a time to, to celebrate the goodness and the graciousness of God. And then he would go on and talk about, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That this joy that gives us strength to face the circumstances of our life. And this summer, we've just been walking through a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And right up there on the front end, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That joy flows from our relationship with Jesus Christ. So with that kind of as the background, I want us to dive into the first chapter, kind of the first part of the first chapter of Philippians 1. And as we do that, let's just kind of take care of a few introductory matters that might help us to to understand this letter as we walk through it over these next few weeks. Verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, in kind of the form of writing back in that day, you would identify who the sender was on the front end. Paul and Timothy, servants, or some of your translations will say slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much just right there, but but I just said just to give you the background Paul had this special relationship with this group of folks in a place called Philippi, a Roman colony there. And as he had, he, you go back to Acts 16, you can read about the founding of the church there where he had that kind of that Macedonian vision. He goes over, he finds some folks uh, by the river in kind of a, a prayer meeting type, and he, he ends up proclaiming the gospel. A woman, Lydia, becomes one of the first converts in that area, a Philippian jailer, and on and on. The episodes are recorded for us in Acts 16. But this was just a, a special place. He had just a special relationship with these people and it continued through the years even though they didn't see each other all that frequently through the years but they kind of had a a special place in his heart he is writing to them as I mentioned just a few moments ago he is writing to them while he's in a Roman prison now that if you're in a prison you tend not to think you're going to write a letter that permeates joy right But that is exactly what he writes from that place of imprisonment. And he starts off just introducing himself and Timothy who's with him. He calls them servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And he, even in that greeting, tells us something significant. That slavery has such horrible connotations when we think about human slavery. Whether it's what's going on in the world right now, what's going on in the history of our country, the horrors of slavery for sure. But Paul is understanding this as a positive thing. He understands the source of his strength, the source of his life, the source of his joy, the source of his freedom is being a slave, a servant to Jesus Christ. That when he lives out of that posture, it brings joy, it brings freedom, it brings power to his life. And so instead of using his usual greeting where he identifies himself as an apostle because of his great relationship with these folks, he skips that. He doesn't kind of play that that power card. He just says, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. 
And he's writing to the saints. The, the word saints there literally means holy ones or set apart ones. And that, that is the identity of everyone who is in Jesus Christ, that we have been set apart unto God, that we belong to him. We are for his purposes and for his glory along the way. The holy ones, the set apart ones, the saints. And he calls out a couple of groups in particular, overseers and deacons, leadership in the life of that local church, perhaps in need of special encouragement as he's going to tackle some subjects later in the, in the letter that maybe they need to bring some, some leadership to. And he, he kind of calls them out uh, for a, a special uh, encouragement and how we do need to encourage leaders in all, uh, all walks of our, of our life. But, but he comes, and, and with this identity, he, he gives to them that greeting, grace and peace. Grace and peace. It, it, some have said it's, it's kind of a bringing together of, of, of a traditional Greek and a traditional Hebrew greeting, but it's much more than that. It's Paul just declaring the foundation of his joy. Grace, the grace that he's experienced, God's mercy, God's unmerited favor, God's goodness continually poured out to him, the grace that's come to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he, he celebrates that and he just stands in that. And peace, peace with God through Jesus Christ. The peace of God that he'll talk about later in this letter that guards his heart. The peace that we can have with other people that flows out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here in this, just these initial words that might be throwaway lines, maybe for some of us, if we're writing a letter or an email or something, hey, how are you doing today or something? But, but it's kind of full with meaning and foundation for everything that he's going to talk about. And then as he kind of turns from the introduction, he talks about relationships, and particularly the relationship he has with them. And what I want you to see here this morning are three things, three things that can help lift the joy level in our relationships. Because let's be honest, for most of us in the room, we have relationships across the board, right? You probably have some relationships in your life that bring you incredible joy, and you just, I mean, you kind of light up when you see them. When they come into the room, it's a, yeah. There are other relationships in your life, not so much, right? <laughs> not so much. When they come into the room, you go, uh, uh right? Uh, don't look at me so spiritual like you don't do that, right? We do. We have, relationships can be a source of incredible joy or sometimes inc incredible irritation, frustration, and challenge. But regardless of where a relationship stands, Paul gives us some counsel here that can help lift the joy level in the relationships of our life. And he tells us to do three things. He kind of really models for us three things. And the first is simply this, put others in your thoughts. Put others in your thoughts. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, notice some of the things that Paul's saying here. He's talking about how he thinks about people. And that's kind of the first thing. He's actually thinking about people. He's in prison. 
If I'm in those situations, sometimes the only thing I'm thinking about is me. The only thing I'm thinking about is, is how, how, how unfair this is. How can I get out of this mess? How can this, this pain be relieved? How can I, how can I get justice or whatever it might be? But he is thinking about others. He has caring thoughts. He genuinely cares for these people. He cares for them. And that's, that's a huge joy lifter right there. When I actually begin to think about others, when I think caring thoughts toward others, that it's not just about me and my problems and my challenges, but I'm actually thinking about other people. Please understand, he hasn't seen these folks physically for years. Depending upon how you, you track uh, some of his journeys, he did uh, make a couple of other trips by there in his second, third missionary journey. But, but it had probably been several years before that he has not physically been in their presence. They did send somebody to help him, as we'll see later in our study, in Rome. But he hasn't really seen most of these folks in years. And you know what happens to us? It happens to all of us, right? Out of sight is out of mind, right? And sometimes we just, it's not that we like, don't like them, it's just we don't see them. We don't hang out with them. And this was long before the days of Facebook and Instagram and all the others, right? In fact, is didn't even have a cell phone, couldn't text, right? Couldn't even make a long-distance call, for goodness sakes. And yet, even though they had been out of sight for years, they were not out of mind. He had these incredible, caring thoughts for them. He cared about them in all my remembrance of you. He remembered them with caring thoughts, but also with thankful thoughts. I thank God. I thank God my God, in all my remembrance. That as he thought about them, there was, there was great gratitude, great gratitude for, for the, the, what they had meant to one another and what they continued to mean to one another. And with those thankful thoughts, there were joyful thoughts. He, he, he talked about uh, his prayer, always in every prayer of mine, uh, and he talked about his, his joy, the joy that just was a part of, of his experience with him, of the thoughts that he had uh, for them, praying with joy. He had thankful thoughts, joyful thoughts, but he also had some confident thoughts. He had confident thoughts. He was confident. He was confident that God who began a good work in them, Christ Jesus who began this good work in them was going to carry it through to completion, not because he was there, not because he was doing such a great job, uh, but he was confident in what God was doing. His confidence even wasn't so much in them. His confidence was in the Lord. It was the Lord who had begun that good work in them. I am confident that he who began a good work in you, it was, it was Jesus Christ who began that good work. And so he has all of these thoughts, caring thoughts, thankful thoughts, joyful thoughts, confident thoughts toward them. And notice the use of the word all there. All my thoughts for all of you. Now, please understand, I'm sure there were people he, were, he was closer to than others, right? And there are people that we are closer relationally to than others. We just, we fit together better. We just connect better. But his his thinking about them, his joy in those relationships was, was greater than just the folks he naturally got along with well. 
but it was something that permeated his life. He had these thoughts for all of these folks. And so I want to pause here and kind of come at it from not Paul's perspective, but ours. What kind of thoughts do you typically have towards people? I mean, think about it. Think about what you think about here, right? A lot of us, if we're honest, say, I typically have skeptical thoughts. I typically have judgmental thoughts. I typically have cynical thoughts. I I typically kind of try to quickly put people in a category so I can kind of have a handle on on them. And so I I, I put this one here and this one here and this one here, and that's why we like labels so much, right? What kind of thoughts do you typically have? Maybe you say, honestly, I don't typically have a lot of thoughts about people because I'm just too caught up with me. Part of lifting the joy level in our relationships is at the mind level, is at the thought level, is that I begin to think of others. I begin to think differently. And then when was the last time that you thanked God for another person? Sometimes we thank God you know, for, you know, good bread, good meat, good Lord, let's eat, or whatever it might be, you know, thank you for this food, or maybe we say thank you for, for getting me through the day, I've made this trip back and forth, thank you that I survived the solar eclipse, or whatever it might be, you know, we say thank you for all sorts of things, right? But when was the last time? When was the last time you said, God, thank you for this person? Thank you for that person. Thank you for what they have meant to my life, what they have done in my life, how they have invested in my life, the model that they've been in my life, the mentor they've been to me, the encouragement they've been to me. And then I would just even encourage you to maybe think about taking that one step further. Paul not only was thanking God, but he was writing a letter and saying thank you to them. When's the last time you just told somebody thank you? I mean, not just, you know, for the person that refilled your tea at the restaurant. I'm I'm talking about, you know, somebody that maybe has impacted your life. Just to say thank you. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. When we begin to think differently, when we begin to think toward others with caring thoughts and with thankful thoughts, with joyful thoughts. We, we, we begin to, to kind of uh, have a confidence and even speak that confidence that God is at, at work in their lives and, and see that potential in them and call that out. When we, we express that to God and we express that to others, it will begin to lift the joy level in our life. But if our thoughts turn inwards, if our thoughts are, woe is me, or I didn't get this, or they should have done this better, I guarantee you that the joy level's going to drop in your life. Think the right thoughts. He experienced joy and modeled joy in relationships because he put others in his thoughts. Put others in your thoughts. But there's a second thing that Paul models for us here, and that is to put others in your heart. To put others in your heart. Notice the language he uses there in verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, 
because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, before we we dive in here, let's just pause for a moment and just, let's just say, you know, for some of us, we don't open up our hearts very well, right? Some of us have been hurt. And in that hurt, we've gotten guarded. And we have kind of felt that's the only way for me to make it through this world. But what happens is that sometimes when you guard your heart, and the Bible is all for wisdom and discernment, absolutely. But sometimes in what we call guarding our heart, we actually harden our heart. And it hardens it maybe against the pain of the past. But it also hardens it so that we don't open up our hearts to relationship and love and life in the future. Paul knew pain in relationships. Read the New Testament. Paul knew what it was to be betrayed by people. Paul knew what it was to have somebody you thought was going to be there desert you. Paul knew what it was to have people turn on him. Paul knew what it was to be physically beaten and unjustly imprisoned and all of these things. He could have had every reason in the world to be one of the most cynical, hardened people in the world. He didn't. He didn't. Because he chose in Christ Jesus another way. He chose, and yes, it hurts sometimes, but he chose to open up his life and open up his heart to others. In fact, is the word there in verse 8 that's translated affection. It is literally bowels and intestines. Now, we read that and it's like, oh, what? Oh, man. I mean, what is he really saying there, right? I know that's not how we talk. We tend to say, I love you with all of my heart. But in that cultural context, this would have been a word that was speaking to kind of the, this is the core of who you are. This is the kind of the seat of your emotions. And so Paul is using the strongest possible terms to say, you matter so much to me. I have this incredible love for you that is a deep-seated love. It's not a, not a surface, I love you man kind of thing, but it, it, is, it is a deep-seated affection that he has for them. And he also uses in the, the verse 7 and also in verse 5 uh, the Greek word koinonia. And some of us are, are familiar with that because it's most, most often translated fellowship. And when we think about relationship and in church speak, we say, oh, fellowship. We know how to do fellowship. In fact, is Baptists know how to do it so well, we have in our building a whole room dedicated to it, right? We call it the fellowship hall. And so we understand, right? Fellowship means eating, right? I mean, that's it, right? We got it down. Uh, Eat together, that's fellowship, right? No. No. 
In fact, is in these verses in the ESV, it's, it's translated partnership. It's translated you are uh, 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 partakers with me of grace. It is something more than just socializing. And that's kind of what we have trivialized it down to. When Paul writes about fellowship, he's talking about a a connectedness, a a partnership together. A partnership that comes from the gospel and is for the gospel. That that we, we are connected to one another. We have this partnership in the gospel. We are, you are partakers with me of grace. It comes because we are connected in Jesus Christ. We have been rescued. We have been saved. We've been redeemed by the same act of Jesus. Christ on the cross and that gives us a connection we are brothers and sisters in Christ somebody said that that fellowship is 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 two fellows in the same ship and that's not bad that really isn't bad because it's like we are together we are in this same container this same ship if you will the same state because of Jesus Christ but it's a ship with a mission it's a mission to proclaim to model to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so biblical fellowship is much more than just socializing. It's much more than just eating together. It's actually much more than friendship. It's deeper than that. And and sometimes people get confused at this because they think, well, friendship, fellowship are the same thing. Actually, friendship has to do a lot with with common interests, common personalities, common season of life, all of those sort of things. You you have friendship with with, with folks. You like to spend time with them. There's just that connection. But fellowship is is deeper than that. You, You don't necessarily have to be best friends with somebody to have fellowship with them. It is a fellowship that is that is defined by our connection in Jesus Christ by our common commitment to the mission of Jesus Christ. It is from the gospel, and it is for the gospel. And the source of authentic biblical fellowship is always, always, always Jesus Christ. So he talks about, you are partakers with me of grace. And then he talked about the the partnership for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel and it's the affection of Christ Jesus. That's the source. That's the source. It is God's love flowing through me so that I can have a love for, I can even have a fellowship with people that I wouldn't naturally have a friendship with. And we're not going to be best buds just because we're just different, you know, and just that's not life, and all of us just have a certain amount of bandwidth, but I can have something even deeper. I can have this fellowship that that flows from Jesus Christ, that is mission-focused for the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that it is the love of Jesus Christ that is flowing through me to others. But it doesn't happen unless you open up your heart. And so let me, again, turn from Paul to you and me. Are you opening up your heart to people? As you think about your life, are you opening up your heart and your life to people? Are you super guarded? Maybe more cynical. Maybe not willing to take the risk anymore. And and hear me, I wish I could tell you, open up your heart and you won't get hurt. (laughs) 
but I've committed to telling you the truth. And that's not so. Open up your heart and occasionally you will get hurt. But don't open up your heart and your soul will shrivel. Your joy will drain. Your life will shrink. And you'll miss out on so, so much that God has for you. Is there a risk in opening up your heart? Yeah. But it is a far greater risk to not open up your heart to other people. How did Paul know joy in his relationships even from a prison cell? Because he had put other people in his thoughts. Because he had put others in his heart. But he models for us one other key component. And that is, he put others in his prayers. Put others in your prayers. We already saw there in verse 4 where he, he talked about his, his prayers for them. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Then verse 9, he kind of picks that back up. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, let me just ask you a question as we, we, we kind of unpack this. What do I pray about? What do I typically pray about? Pray for my meal, maybe. Maybe I pray when there's a crisis. Right? Maybe I pray when I've tried everything else. Or maybe I pray a little more regularly than that, but I tend to pray for, you know, safety. You know, Lord, watch over my kids, get them back and forth safe. I pray for provision of job. I pray for sickness, bad medical reports. I pray for all these things, and those are good and appropriate things to pray for. But Paul didn't stop there. In the relationships of his life, he didn't just pray, Lord, you know, kind of keep them safe and keep them healthy, relatively you know, well off. No. He prayed at a much different level. And I'm just going to just maybe encourage you. If you really want to pray for people, one of the best ways to pray for others is to pray God's word. And there are just sections of God's Word that you can just pick up and, and take that prayer and just pray on behalf of others. And one of those is just these verses right here, verses 9 and 11. Notice how Paul prayed. He prayed, first of all, for their growth in love. He prayed for their growth in love, that your love may abound more and more. He was praying that their, their capacity to love would grow, their understanding of God's love for them, their capacity to love other people would grow. And so he's praying for their growth in love, their, their acceptance, their openness to God's love, and they're sharing that love. They're opening up that love to other people. He prays for their growth in love. He prays for their choices, that they would operate in that love with discernment, with, with knowledge. And so he's praying for their choices 
And man, in a world like ours, what a great prayer that is to pray for the people that you care about. And because for many of us today, uh, our, our challenging choices aren't between good and bad. For, for most of us in the room, that's not where we, we find the greatest challenge. The greater challenge is between good, better, and best. There are so many options. There are so many opportunities. There are so many voices. There's so much information. What if we started praying for each other for discernment and knowledge? For the ability to distinguish not just good from bad, but good, better, and best. That God, we w- would not settle for good when you are trying to direct us to that which is best. So he prays for their choices, for their discernment. He prays for their character. He prays for their character, and he uses two specific words in this context. The first was the word purity. Purity, which was literally meant to be sun-tested. Sun-tested. And what in the world does that mean? Well, it kind of grows out of even the marketplace where where a, a a potter or maker of dishes or whatever, they would make this, and if there was a, a crack in it, well, rather than kind of discard that, sometimes they would try to pass that off as good. And one of the ways that they would do that is they would fill the cracks with wax and then just kind of paint over the whole thing. And so if you were just looking at it, picking it up and looking at it, you would lay hey, pretty solid, pretty dependable, no, no problems. But wise shoppers learn to sun test before they bought. And so they would take that, that, that piece that they were thinking about buying and they, they would hold it up to the light. They'd hold it up to the sunlight. And I don't know if it works on an eclipse or not, but any other day it would work and they would hold it up to the light and where the wax was, you could see the light would, be, would shine through even though there was some paint there. You could see where the wax was. In fact, is the root of our word sincere is from two words sincera, without wax. Without wax. And so he using that, uh, that concept when he talks about purity here, that we, we've been tested, that there's not cracks that have been covered up, but we're, 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 our character is, is whole, that, that God is, is, is doing a healing, that God is growing, that God is making us whole men and women so that we walk in purity. And, and if you can press that analogy just a little bit further, we're not tested by the physical son, but we're, we're tested by God's son so that our character uh, lines up with the character of Jesus Christ. There is a purity there that's much more than just I don't do bad things, but proactively, positively, I reflect all the good characteristics of Jesus Christ. Purity and blamelessness. Blameless is about not causing others to stumble. That, I, that I, I, my life is lived in such a way, he's praying that their life would be lived in such a way that it doesn't cause other people to stumble. To stumble uh, in, in seeking God and discovering God. To stumble in their walk with God. And so he's praying for their purity. He's praying that they would be blameless. And then he models for us, he prays for their fruitfulness. He prays for their fruitfulness, that their life would be fruitful, that it would be meaningful, that it would make an impact, that it would make a difference, that it wouldn't just be kind of this journey of of consumption and just going along from cradle to grave, but there would be a a fruitfulness, that the fruit of righteousness would show forth in their life. 
It's a fruit that comes from Jesus Christ, and it is for God's glory. So the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, like joy, it comes from our connectedness to Jesus Christ. And when we walk in purity, when we walk in a state blamelessness, when we walk in this fruit of righteousness, whether that's the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of good works or the many different ways that is used in the New Testament, it comes through Jesus Christ, but it gives honor and glory and praise to God. And so let me, let me just circle back to the question. How are you praying? Who are you praying for? And how are you praying for them? Could it be that one of the reasons that Paul had such joy in his relationships, even in a prison cell, is because he prayed differently than you and I tend to pray for the people in our lives. That he prayed probably for what we prayed for, but he prayed for so much more. Could it be that we would lift the joy level if we prayed a little bit differently, a little more regularly perhaps, but a little differently as well for the people in our life. But let me take that one step further. Not only who are you praying for and how are you praying for them, but who's praying for you? Who is praying for you? Do you have some people in your life that are praying for you? And how have you asked them to pray for you? Might it lift our joy level if we really were praying for each other in that way? If we had opened up our lives to each other enough to you know, have that, at least a few folks to begin with, I said, pray for me. And here's some ways you can pray. Or if we just took some passages, you could just do a bunch out of Paul's letters, but just like Philippians 1, 9 through 11, just, I'm going to pray this for you this week. I'm going to pray this for you. Who are you praying for and how are you praying for them? Who is praying for you and how will you ask them to pray for you? Paul knew incredible joy in his relationships because of the way that he thought about people. Because he had opened up his heart to people. And because of the way that he prayed with and for people and how they prayed for him. And that's not just with this one group. You might be tempted to say, well, this was just a special group he had a special bond with. But you see that permeating his, his teachings all the time. He knew this truth, that our relationships can be incredible, incredibly irritating or a source of incredible joy. Paul certainly knew irritation, but he knew joy. He knew joy, not just with the Philippians, but but look what he says about Timothy. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. God has given you and I the capacity to increase the joy in the relationships of our life. But it goes back to those choices that we have to make. For Timothy was an increaser of joy. Philemon, he says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. John, and the, the, writing what we might call even a postcard rather than a letter, Third John, talks about those who bring joy to his heart. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
And so today, today I want to encourage you to choose joy in your relationships. Choose joy by the way that you think about others. Choose joy by the way that you pray for others. Choose joy by opening up your heart to others. In fact, is that's how I want us to kind of close it this morning. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm just going to ask you to go be still for just a few minutes. And, and it may help just to close your eyes. And if it helps you to bow ahead, whatever posture would help you to focus. And, and what I'm just going to ask you to do in these next couple moments is just say, God, would you bring some people to my mind right here, right now? I'm not going to wait till this week. I hope you'll keep doing it this week. But right here, right now. God, would you bring some people to my thoughts? And just allow the Lord just to bring some people. Maybe it's somebody that's very, very close to you right now that you have daily interaction with. Maybe it's somebody you haven't seen in years. But who is God bringing to your thoughts? And then, can I just encourage you right now just as you're sitting before the Lord just to say thank you just allow God to bring some people to your mind and you just say God thank you for this person thank you for what they've meant to me thank you for how they've enriched my life thank you for how they've added value to me thank you for how you've used them in my life just thank him for those people And then as you just continue to sit before the Lord, would you just allow him to speak to you about how you've opened up your heart or how you've resisted that? And maybe just in these moments, just say, God, is there, is there somebody that you would want me to open up my heart just a little bit more to? to take a risk, to take a chance, to just open my heart to them in a deeper way. And then I'm just going to ask you to take a moment and just pray for somebody. And don't just maybe pray what you normally pray for them not saying that's wrong but I'm just going to encourage you to pick up some of Paul's prayers pray for their growth in love pray for knowledge and discernment in their choices pray for their character pure, blameless pray for their fruitfulness through Jesus Christ And maybe as you're sitting before the Lord today, he may bring somebody to your mind just to say, that's somebody I need to ask to pray for me. And how will you ask them to pray for you? Father, we just thank you right now that you are the source of joy. And that you 
can guide us into experiencing incredible joy even in the relationships of our life. Yes, even in some of those challenging relationships. And so, Father, I just pray today that you teach us, you teach us what you taught Paul. You teach us, Father, that even in a prison cell, we can put people in our thoughts, in our hearts, and in our prayers. Father, would you just empower us to lift the level of joy in the relationships in our life because of the way that we think, act, talk, and pray. As we take just a few more moments just to be before the Lord, there's some questions on a note-taking guide that invite you to make this personal and We'll encourage you just to spend some time with that even this week, just allowing God hopefully to use some of those questions to continue to drill some of these things deeper. But very specifically, I just want to ask today as you're here before the Lord, do you personally know the joy that comes from a relationship with Jesus?